But chapter 13 right now is in line with what Nathan the prophet had told uh, David would happen in the future events. And so that future event is happening right now within his family. Though we haven't come close to it, the Lord did say through Nathan that the sword would not depart from his house. And so this is the beginning of a sword not departing from his house. And so very often we can say, is there any way out of it? I think that can always be the question mark. But I know that there's a way through it. And that is an exclamation mark. Is there any way out of it? A question mark. But there is a way through it. Exclamation mark. And this is why David is identified as one who had a heart that followed after God. For in a time in which he certainly could have given up because of what he would cite as abject failure, being the object of scorn and derision, of a challenge to his leadership. He continued to be in pursuit to the last of his days for God's ultimate accomplishment through him. So that's a bravo. Mindful of that, there are people such as us who perhaps have not entered into that time of failure. But there are people who have experienced failure. And so we need to be able to exclaim to them, the Lord will see you through this. And he's faithful. And he always is. I cited a song last week. Moving back in that we do substantial reading right now with exposition. Let's begin the narration one more time. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. We talked about that. It wasn't. It was what the Bible describes as licentiousness, pursuing that which was out of ordinance from God's will and his heart. We defined it last week as that which was contrary to what he was cited as believing it to be love. It was lust. And that being said, it will have a consequence. But we'll also have some scripture again to encourage us that we need to see. Amnon, it says, was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So the Lord gives us in this a clue by virtue of this narration that his conscience would have told him of an impropriety. That would be God citing preemptively what he knew he ought not transgress. God does that. He allows us by conscience, even those who we would say have no conscience, no one has an excuse, and in this case, that would be true for him. Again, he's a son of David, and he happens to be the eldest son of David. And he may have in his mind's eye, and obviously with pride, presumed that he was outside of the area of correction. But he's not. That will be evident later. But it says again in verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei. And it says David's brother. Now Jonadab was very crafty as a man. 
a very crafty man, reminds me of the description of Satan. And so craftiness in this case is not commending one for carpentry skills. It's indicting a man for suspicious and deceitful activity. Why would he be this way? And why in the world would he give counsel to his cousin instead of thwarting, preventing, saving with wisdom what his cousin was in the throes of? The throes of being one manipulated by his mind and obviously by Satan. Remember, Satan was an adversary of David. We see it pictured back with Goliath, the big giant, taunting God, calling names out to David. David took him down. So the enemy has always been a taunter of God's people. He has been one that has worked behind the scenes and within the scenes to subdue those who have opportunity to do great things for God, to mess up families of God. And this is one of those pictures. And so one of the things that we need to understand in scriptures as well, which we've looked at before, is how do you pick your friends? You pick your friends based on their heart for God. And if they have no heart for God, then you need to be questioning whether or not how close of a friend can they be. And in particular, when the encouragement is to do something that is godless, that's just a really good way to understand how you pick your friends. And sometimes there's a need to walk away from what you may have considered a friend. To walk away, and if they shall, and if they're wise, they will follow you on your way to following the Lord. Maybe the friendship was actually for them more influential than they let on to you. And though you might have become influenced by them, you leaving is actually what pricks their heart and determines that they do not want to be left alone. They don't want to be left to their devices. So a crafty man is what he's qualified as, and you'll see how this plays out in this scenario as we've looked at it. And he said to him, why are you the, king, why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And so we cited back in the Old Testament Leviticus law that made prohibition for that. Not justification, prohibition. And we saw that God actually introduced his law for the purpose of bringing cohesiveness to what we would call the nuclear family. That's a description of a social term that we call marriage. And God defined marriage as one man, one woman, for the purpose of uniting distinctly, uniquely, to become one. And prayerfully, to be one with God in a union that by such there is the wonderful work of having children brought into the world, a heritage for God. And this right now is telling us that this counselor and this particular player are both going to be ultimately victims of themselves. And so as we proceed on here, 
Jonadab comes up with the plan, which we would call conspiratorial, and it is simply this. Lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come, give me food, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So one of the things that we know is there was a place where the women stayed, the virgin daughters of Israel. It was a convent, if you would. And there was a place where David's sons would stay. It appears that this son had his own place, and we will discover that Absalom also has his own place. And it appears that each son who had their place had also men within their place. We would call that today accountability partners. And I believe in that. I believe that as believers, we are accountable. And it's a good thing. It's not that we're looking for something bad to be done. It's that we're there for somebody before bad is done. We're able to come alongside them and to evaluate how to encourage them to be able to give scriptural insight or even prohibit with a strong word. And so there have been many men, many women who have been saved from the consequence of sin because of accountability. So what happens though when those who can be accountable partners with you are so enamored with you that they're afraid to speak? Now that hasn't happened with me. I hear a lot of people that are glad to speak to me both positively and also, in my opinion, very correctively, in a good sense. And that happens in scholarship. But what happens when people who are, if you would, on the payroll, don't want to cause themselves to be fired? What, what they do is they kindle then the desire of, of those who are subordinate, they are subordinate under. And so rather than put out a fire, they give fuel for it. And this is evident here. So one of the points that we want to understand is that as believers today, as a church, we're accountable to one another. And we need to do so in grace and in truth. And we need to do so because even like Nathan, he was summoned by the Lord. And that's a good thing to have. So both with the cloistering of the women who were virgin, the sons who had their own seemingly pad, and that was a part of their reward as being sons of the king, it would seem to me that this house was not kept in order. Amnon's house was not orderly. And it would appear to be that he was also one not devoted like his father to the Lord. So that's always one of the things you have to ask yourself. Is that person devoted to the Lord as his father or as his brothers? Is that woman devoted to the Lord as her sisters, her mother? Is there something that marks them different? And so that is something that we would say is a part of accountability and assessment. This particular man is coming up with a strategy for Amnon and with it, we will also see that David seems to have been not suspicious, or perhaps he was simply deficient of discernment. Why? 
Well, he had just come out of a pretty big melee of failure himself. And very often that's when a man is at his weakest is when he has failed at his most profound. So it gets complicated. Therefore, one of the words we need to know is this, don't allow your failure to fail another. Everybody has to determine that if God indeed is merciful and gracious, and if he is abounding in mercy, and if in fact we transact to the Lord by confession that we failed, it's forgiven and it's forgotten. Others may remember God chooses not to. And we can from that moment then use our failures to be able to lead others away from such. A failed man and a failed woman very often are the qualified people that God will use. Because of what? Brokenness. David was a broken man. Very often those people that have failed become dismissed because perfection wasn't found in them. Nobody's perfect though. And so David right now may have been in that valley of the shadow of death. He understood that he'd been forgiven by God and that what was due him was the penalty of sin, which was death. But that was, that was something that in a dispensation from God would not be allowed. But it doesn't mean that even when you know that about God and you're touched deeply by God, that you are not yet still vulnerable in not having all of your faculties set sharply on the things of God. And this is what we find because the appeal is being made to him that his daughter coming from a cloistered house of other virgin daughters is giving special attention. This is where David probably should have said, bake your own bread. Get up out of bed. You've been sleeping here too long. Start doing some push-ups. Run some laps around the city. I haven't seen you for a long time. Where are you at morning devotions? Again, I'm taking dramatic privilege right now, but there's a time in which idleness, and in this case, what would have been easily have seen as a unique affliction, and one that, in fact, was by his own heart. And David, who had a heart that followed after God, could have seen the heart of his son, who didn't, and very likely could have rendered a decision to protect both his son. Get up. It's time. Tamar, not for you. If you must, if that's what you want to do, you're taking with you your entire household of friends. You'll be strong together. But where were the guys that were servants to Amnon when he was ill? See, that's the thing, is that the very guys that could have served him were not seemingly asked for and not available. Assertiveness very often is what it takes to protect the one you assert yourself to the other. And that's very often what intercession does. You assert yourself into a predicament of two different groups that are going to be harmed ultimately if you don't stand in the way and you don't stand in the gap. And so, in fact, as he does lie down and as it appears that he has made petition to his father, verse 7, David sent home to Tamar 
and saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Again, I don't think the discussion and discernment was applied right now. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and then she took flour, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. So she's obviously accomplished, but then so could those men who were serving Amnon. And it shows that she does have a heart to serve, and that's a good thing. In other words, what we see here are attributes actually of a very godly woman, a very godly person. She's obeying her father, not questioning him. She comes on the presumption of helping her brother, not questioning that. And it may be that, in fact, what he had been harboring and hiding so well, she would never have been able to see. Maybe it's because she kept her place very well. The keeping of a place takes as much discipline as the unkeptness of a place takes carelessness. It works both ways. But she goes, and she does so to honor her father and to be available to serve her brother. And so remember, though, in this, the dysfunction is that they are not both sister and brother from the same mother. They have the same father. And that's why we cited earlier the scriptures that cited kings are not to multiply wives. You're not to create a bigger burden than what it takes just to establish a God of relationship with one woman. Because obviously God saw what happens when that occurs. One husband, one wife is sufficient. So as Tamar is engaged right now to do a domestic activity, taking the pan, placing them out before him, but he refused to eat. And then Amnon said, have everyone go out for me. And they all went out from him. This indicates that there were observers there, meaning that this is now him moving into a stage of committing this act of sin. And this is where those who could have been accountability partners could have said, Amnon, why would we do that? We're here for you. Your sister's here serving you. We'll stay. And by the way, can we have some of those extra biscuits she's making? We're going to eat them with you. We're going to see to it that what she has delivered is going to be reviving you. But again, they're under charge. But it shows you what power can do. Power can corrupt and power can dismiss correction. And so they leave. And according to what the scriptures tell us here, Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. So this is a zone in which you don't cross into. But again, it would show us that she had no suspect of this. But it nevertheless, for contemporary language, it's an area that you respect. And that obviously means that for those who are single, as well as those who are married, if it ain't your room, it's not your room. And in particular, when what we see here is the 
willful intention of a man to do harm. So there are barriers that are put up. And again, we don't assume that she is anything other than just a beautiful example of a serving woman and one who's at the disposal of respecting her older half-brother. Her father had given her permission. There's nothing that seems to have been anything other than, okay, I'll do it. When she had brought them into him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And this indicates his treachery. And this indicates more clearly, as we said earlier, that it's not love, it's lust. We have scripture that refers to that. It would be expressed better with licentiousness. She answered him, no, my brother, do not force me for no, no such thing should be done in Israel and do not do this disgraceful thing. This again, through this mouth of this woman is preemptive. She's actually saying exactly what she needs to say. She's crying out, which is obedience to the scriptures. Deuteronomy made it clear that if a woman cries out, then she is free in the event that there is a committing of fornication or adultery. If she cried out, she does. She cries out and she cites him saying that this is a disgraceful thing. Don't do this. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. It's interesting that she's citing something right now that probably would have been prophetically thwarted because we already have the law that was introduced from the cultural dilemma that David and the other kings would find themselves in. They would have to have been completely contradicting scripture and in particular this case for a near relative wasn't be done. So she's actually citing scripture right now, reasoning with him, but pleading and also telling him who he is. You're a fool. So she's doing what is right. Now here's the thing as well. In this we see pictured what the world does. The world intends to grab us by the hand. Illustratively, we're the bride of Christ, right? In essence, God says, you're my virgin bride. He presents us before his father without spot or wrinkle. And we can all say, how could he do that? Because he's God and he loves us. We are not judged according to previous sin, nor even our nature to sin. We've been covered by the blood. We have been forgiven. It's a work of grace that God does to present us to himself, even though the clutches of the world say, lie with me. Commit fornication with me. That's what the world does. Amnon's a picture of the carnality of the world and a justification that it's okay. It is happening. It does happen. It's a hard thing. But this is a picture nevertheless. And as a result of that, what we need to be able to do is to be wise in these days. And so when you see a culture now rejecting morality that is of God and making opportunity which is not of God, you need to say, 
I'm not going to have that be my endorsement. I will not endorse immorality. I will do what I can to prohibit it as I can. A lot of us need to know that in a very short while, though we have at times a difficulty wondering about the moral integrity of politicians, on several notes we are able to say, but this I know, in this area, for this purpose, there's a better moral standard than the other. And when there's a better moral standard than the other, you take the better even though it's not the perfect. Culture that is motivated by the enemy is intending to defile the Bride of Christ, the Virgin Bride of Christ. He is after us. His desire is to destroy us. And God's heart is that not only He save us, but even if that may occur, He will present us as without spot and wrinkle. Praise the Lord. He's a fool. The world system is foolish continues to get more so. And it grieves us, doesn't it? Because it has consequences for certain. So what is this about then? I think that's it. It's the, it's the picture right now that, that David probably would not. But if it was a term that would cause him to say, hmm, didn't think about that, maybe my dad would. We don't know. Was it a bluff? We don't know. Would David have used civil agency, compromising culturally, to satisfy Amnon? We don't know. Again, he's still in a valley right now. He's not at a high point in his life. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than her, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, said that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. <coughs> That's the epitaph. Arise, be gone, I hate you. And that's what the world does. It satisfies itself on the compromise of the church and says, I hate you. And that's why there is a hatred, basically, for the church. And basically, what the enemy says for people and for purity. Remember, one of the things that we need to understand about the nature of God is not only is he love, but he is also holy. And holy is about God, who is worthy of devotion because, and it's on two conditions, his perfect righteousness and goodness. Two conditions that represent holiness. His perfect, perfect, and that means no flaws whatsoever. Righteousness and goodness. So when the Lord would say to us, to his church, be holy for I am holy, he's saying you were integrated with me. It's not with arms folded or hands on the hip or finger pointed at us. He's saying, in my nature, in my integration of you within me, you are holy. You are perfect. You are one 
that is in my mind, in my heart, and reserved for me, perfect in righteousness and in goodness. That's holiness. If you misunderstand that, then what happens is you work for it and you find yourself defeated by it because you can never attain it. So what do we understand about that? It's imparted to us. And that's what this picture may represent that's necessary to comfort us, certainly to give us encouragement in this. And so it says that he hates her and he dismisses her, be gone. And this is actually what we would say contemporary language, be gone. Many relationships are terminated in their early stages because of violation of spiritual principles. And so we're not to be surprised when that happens. But we're also not to be those who are without a heart to help and to heed for ourselves as we tend those who need healing. Arise and be gone. And she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Which that servant actually should have done as soon as the cakes were made. Thanks, Tamar. Awesome job. We'll see that this gets to your brother and we'll let you know the good report that your father also will hear he's doing better. But see, they appeased one who was ruthless and cunning because he learned craftiness from his cousin. And so bad morals corrupt good morality. So as our society moves towards being immoral, it will have a corrupting effect, both within the families, both within the dynamics of those who presently are maturing and prayerfully doing so with a heart for purity. It continues that as she is now being sent out with the door being bolted behind her, she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters, wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. But then Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her robe of many colors that was on her, laid her hand on her head, and went away crying bitterly. This is a lamentation. It is what we would call repentance. Though she was not guilty per se, strategically, she was a victim vulnerable. But she is also saying, I own this. She is in a state of contrition. She doesn't need a Nathan to visit her. But it's interesting what she does in the tearing of the robe. She's, acknowledged, she's acknowledging, I'm no longer a virgin, and I no longer can be cloistered with them. Ashes on the head constitute an overt act, literally of saying, I'm undone, and Lord, this is who I am now. And then moving from this, though, notice what happens, though. As a result of now, in this act, which I believe is, is humbling herself before the Lord, it indicates that she went to Absalom's house. This is important. 
Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained, it says, desolate in her brother's Absalom's house. Here's what she should have done and didn't do. Very often we go to the source that's acceptable that we seem to think is going to be able to take care of us in our situation, but she needed to go to the Father's house. She needed to present herself to him so that he would be able to transact a decision and adjudicate for her. Why didn't she? It's very likely because she misjudged her father as well, not giving him the opportunity to assess what had been done and to deliver a sentence to his son, which he deserved. She bypassed the father. And very often in this picture too, the bride, the virgin bride bypasses the father because the situation that we've come from is so abhorrent to us, so lamenting for us that we feel we don't have a connection with him. Our father in heaven is flawless. David was flawed, but he still had a heart that is credited, that follows after God. And even though he erred, perhaps in this decision, he had the right of hearing the message. And so fathers, obviously, are those in which our sons and daughters should come to. They shouldn't be the last person. They should be the first person. But even beyond that, beyond that, beyond the temporal realm of the domestic life we're talking about, we should go to our Father in prayer. We should let Him adjudicate over our heart. We should be those who say, Lord, I did what I thought in my innocence was right and I was taken advantage of, and now I'm at a loss. I've lost it all. And that's where God comes in so precisely. Then he's the one that's able to, by virtue of that petition, bring virtue to us in the satisfaction of that petition. Instead, what we will find is that she's going to be hidden by Absalom. And here's what we begin to note about him. He's on a trajectory to take out his brother. In this incident, it gives him the excuse to probably do what he thought he was going to do. And that was to take his spot. Why? Because Amnon would be the next heir apparent. That's what jealousy does. If you flip it, it's exactly what happened with Cain and Abel. Abel was the younger, but he never had a heart to be anything other than serving God and honoring his mother and father. Cain, though, had a different spiritual disposition, was contrary to God. As a result of that, he murdered Abel because of his devotion to God. And because God found him displeasing, God again preemptively worked in Cain's life to say, there is something in you and it's sin and it's crouching at your door and its desires for you, but you must master it. And that's what this generation as well needs to understand. We must master sin that crouches at our door. It must not master us. So she didn't go to her father. She remains desolate in her brother's house. That means no opportunity to truly be healed, to be restored, and she would have been. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister, Tamar, 
And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited the king's son. And this basically all now brings about a plan in which Absalom will sabotage his brother via an invitation to come to a feast of the shearing of the sheep. All the brothers are invited, but the servants have been told, when I give you the signal, you will kill Amnon. And you will do so, and you'll do so courageously. Have I not told you so? But see, this is another picture too. The world tells us to take matters into your own hand. Take matters into your hand, resolve it as your, as your mind has been told to do, as your, as your anger wells up in you, satisfy it. And that's why we have these things that are happening. The unregenerative heart obeys what the carnal command is. And so basically this right now shows us that in David's house, the sword will not depart. Absalom will satisfy this conspiracy to defend seemingly the virtue of his sister, but he will spite his father who had the right to know. How did his father find out? He found out about it through the chain of gossip. And we will see that Abinadab comes back into the situation to explain things concerning his father that related to the fact that there is a wrong understanding. Not all of his sons were killed, just Amnon. And as you follow this through, it indicates that David in his heart towards the conclusion simply was satisfied it was over. Meaning that David wasn't even settled on that issue. What he didn't do was be decisive. What he didn't do once he was aware of what had happened, he seemingly rested for two years on it. Again, why? Probably because, as we've talked about, a sense of overt failure. And as a result of that, he could not make a spiritual decision to assert himself to correct things. Tamar bypassed him. He should have been one that, in that bypassing, had gone to her, summoned her. But he just let things go. So as we also look at this, one of the things we want to say is that we can't let things go. We need to be in pursuit of making things right. That takes both mediation, it takes assertive discipline, it takes a heart that truly follows after God, even though there may be, in that season, it unappreciated. And even there may be a consequence that by inevitable spiritual discourse gets resolved, but at least it gets resolved spiritually and prayerfully. Second Timothy, in closing chapter 2, verse 22, says, flee youthful lust. That's, that's what the church needs to be able to say. Flee youthful lust. They are both within us as individuals, but guess what? They're with those who become a part of our circle, our clique. We're to flee it. When we see that that's where it's going, we need to say bye. Severance is a good word for that. In 1 John chapter 2, 16, it tells us that in the world is the lust of the eyes. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, 
the lust of the flesh, and pride. And those are still the elements today in which we need to say, may I be wise? Lust is rampant. It's both personal and it's also extending into the very areas that we're vulnerable to be in. Galatians 5.16 is a great one for the church. And it simply says this, that we are to be those who walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in closing in one other area that I find to be encouraging and I use it with frequency in weddings, and I'm going to take you there really quick since we are the bride of Christ. Turn, if you would, to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. So the bride, here's what you need to do. Part two of chapter seven in chapter two of the Song of Solomon. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. When love is being stirred up or awakened before it pleases, one has to know, huh, what does this mean? And really the simplicity of that is there's a season to truly be in love. But there's also discretion and discernment required of sorting out, is it love or is it lust? Lust hinges on both spirituality, personality, and physicality. But if one is subordinate to the other, meaning it's the physicality, then the personality and the spirituality, then this is the word to the church. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. It's not in the right order, and it will create disorder. And then also in closing, 4.12, same book. Great one for the church. Solomon, prince, in love, talking to this woman. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. It speaks of the intimacy of one, a sister in the faith who happens to be a spouse in love and who has been shut up, meaning not her mouth, but her intimate love. It's for him, it's for her, it's of them, it's of God, shut up, not available to anyone but this guy, not available to anyone but this gal, why? A sister, a brother, spouses in love. It's a great word to close on. We'll do that right now. 